a lot of us end up making friends with people who don't quite fit who we are. Those friends might be trouble in their own way from their lives, or might be the kind of people who just lean towards destruction. And sometimes we think that it's just kids. Every teenager is guilty of getting a little too emotional every once in a while, and most of us butt horns with our parents during our adolescent years, but when does teen angst turn into cold-blooded murder? More importantly, what would you do if the murderer ended up being your best friend? Would you help them? My name is Brianne, and I'm the host and creator of Among the Dirt and Trees, a show where we explore true crime cases that occur out in nature. For episode 10, I'm going to take you guys back into a story from my childhood. We are going to discuss the case of Nathan Yabanez, a high school student who killed his mother, Julie, and then dragged his friends along for the ride. I think that it is fairly safe to assume that all of us have those stories that we hear about growing up. You know, the ones where someone committed a wild crime and everyone still gossips about it years later. Well, this case is one of those crimes, and I've decided to cover it because it took place in my hometown and was without a doubt a startling story that I remember following at only six years old. I will be upfront and state the obvious. Colorado has had a higher than average number of violent youths committing some pretty terrible acts. In 1999, Columbine High School was violently attacked by two students with guns, but before that happened, something else did. In 1998, Nate Yabanez decided to kill his mother, pulling two of his friends into the crime that would change the suburban town forever. When this case first broke, I remember the raw horror experienced by the adults around me. I remember it being all over the news and people just being, for lack of a better word, shook. For a portion of my life, I grew up in the suburbs that movies make fun of. We called it the bubble because it was all just sheltered and completely cut off from reality. At least the local neighborhood groups and PTA tried to make it that way. So when a 16-year-old boy and his friends murdered his mother, it was a pretty big deal. You know the place where they say, oh, things like that don't happen here. This is that kind of town, but this did happen. Whether or not the local PTA could bear that such a crime occurred, it did. Now, since I grew up with this case and with the stories swirling around it, I thought it might be interesting to start with what I remember about the case. Aside from the general parental shock at the horror of a young man killing his own mother, there was also the schoolyard version of the story. That story went as follows. One day, a troubled young man was having a pretty bad day. This kid always had problems with his parents. He struggled in school, he had issues with authority, and one day, he just snapped. This high school kid lost it, and he decided that his mother was to blame for everything wrong in his life. Then, word on the playground was that he grabbed an old Xbox controller and strangled her with it. As a kid, this was the first huge part of the story. It was... and Bear with me, because I know that this is awful, but it was a twisted kind of joke when I was growing up. A lot of kids just kind of defaulted to this, I'll strangle you with a controller joke. Completely morbid, but also what you get when a bunch of kids don't know the difference between a real crime and a bit of local lore. 
Like I said, this place is really sheltered. I'm pretty sure half the kids who were making the jokes didn't even know what they were talking about or just assumed that it was a local made-up legend. In Colorado, you get kind of used to weird legends taking on their own life. Every single year I was in school, we had some kind of trouble on 420. For some, it was the, uh, let's smoke a bowl day, but for a lot of us, it was the anniversary of Columbine and Hitler's birthday. Every year, our schools face death threats, bomb threats, and more. In a completely disenchanted way, we all just kind of got used to it. People would brace for it and be curious about what was going to happen or what new threat was going to be made. At the time, it felt really singular. It was a Colorado thing. And now, school shootings and horrific crimes like this are happening all around the country, and I worry about what kids might normalize without realizing the reality of those situations. But anyway, (laughs) the word was that that was how he killed his mom. And then he called his friends. The friends conspired to make the mom disappear, Despite a presumably brutal murder, his friends rallied. They all decided that they just needed to dump the body, and that's what they did. They took the body out to Daniels Park, a local park, and decided to throw her body away over one of the pseudo-cliffs in the area. And that is when they got caught. Douglas County Police Department was doing one of their usual patrols of the area, and they caught the kids red-handed trying to haul a body out of the truck. So... That is the story that I grew up with. And before I go into the facts of the case, I want to elaborate a little bit more on the area. When I was growing up, Daniels Park was the spot. It was where you went if you had a car. When I think of Daniels Park, I think of all kinds of wonderful memories. I think about bonfires and time spent yelling and hopping around with friends. I think about walking out to the edges of the areas where you can actually go. And sometimes I think of time spent going beyond those fences, which of course I never once did. But it's a place where I saw frogs for the first and only time in Colorado after a rainstorm. It is the spot where I sat on the hood of a car with a crush I had at 16. It's just kind of the local spot. Daniels Park is a fun, natural area. It's not all that big. There isn't all that much to it, but it is a place where you can go and hang out with friends. It is a natural spot with dirt and trees and crime, but fires and fun. You know, when you drive through it at night, it's dark enough for you to look up and see the stars. It's super romantic. Honestly, it it felt like a bit of nature right on the edge of the suburbs. And I think a lot of us appreciate it for that. So it's pretty wild to think about someone dumping a body there, considering all the good memories that so many people have. Now, up until this point, I have shared my memory of the case with you. Having covered the local lore, I wanted to go into the actual details of the case. In the true version of the story, the one that has 
finally been handed over by those involved with the crime, the murder was kind of planned, and then the plan got kind of messed up. Basically, Nate Yabanez hated his mom. A lot. Um, this wasn't just teen angst. He was constantly fuming about his parents, especially her. Now, we'll we'll go into what might have led him there later, but suffice it to say, he meant it when he said that he wanted to murder his mom, and he made the plan to do it. At the age of 16, killing his mother and handling the aftermath was too much for Nate to handle alone. So he decided to pull in his best friend, Eric. Nate told Eric to wait in the car while he murdered his mom. Just a very casual conversation between friends, you know, like you do. And according to Eric, he was pretty stoned. He's sitting in the car, not really taking it seriously. And maybe that's where this all went wrong for Eric in particular. But he's just sitting, waiting, biding the time. Now, I've been to school in the suburbs. I've been to school in the city. I've seen a pretty good range of students and personality types in my day. And I have to say that a good amount of kids in suburbia carry this intense dislike of their families a lot of the time. It might be a step-parent that they can't stand or the mother that just won't let them have their own way and is trying to turn them into something that they're not. But I've met so many suburban kids who just kind of hate their parents. As teenagers, they just kind of felt this constantly annoyed rage towards family. And even with these kids constantly complaining about their parents... I don't think that I would have taken this seriously. But it was serious. Nate meant what he was saying. The problem is that Eric didn't realize how serious Nate was. So Eric waited. He passed the time and then he went up to the apartment just like he and Nate agreed to. And when he got there, Nate's mom answered the door. That's good, right? Obviously, Nate was just being dramatic. And that was when Nate decided to strike. Now, I am not justifying Eric's actions, and I want to be clear about that. While I do think that he may not have taken Nate's threats seriously enough, I also think that he was willfully blind to how serious his friend was. Reports state that Nate asked Eric to kill his mom, and uh, Eric wasn't cool with that. So he said, no, man, I will not help you kill this woman, but, you know, I can help you get rid of the body if you do it. And this, this kind of haunts me because I feel like a lot of kids grow up with that morbid sense of humor. I definitely, I grew up doling out death threats like they were candy. It's just To some extent, it's just fun. You know, it's the way that our morbid youth communicates a lot of the time. You know, oh yeah, I'll help you hide the body, man, except for there was actually a body in this case. 
I am, I'm sure that his uh, commitment to helping his friend seemed a lot smaller before he watched Nate kill his own mother. Um, but that's the situation that he ended up in. The final reports showed a particularly violent murder. Nate didn't just kill his mom, he violently attacked her with tongs from a fireplace. Her cause of death was ultimately ruled as strangulation, but it wasn't that simple either. Nate jumped on her, he was hitting her and strangling her, he repeatedly struck her in the head, but she refused to die, just fighting him every step of the way while Eric watched on in horror. Now this is where lore and facts come together. So remember how I told you that the story I was told was that he strangled her with an Xbox controller? Well, apparently I received the modern version. Um, In truth, Nate wrapped a Sega Genesis controller around his mom's neck. But he did that after she was already dead. Don't ask me to explain that one because I can't. Uh, Based off what I read, I have to assume that Nate was just straight up terrified that his mom wasn't actually dead. Because after he murdered her, he wrapped the controller around her neck, then he wrapped her head in saran wrap and taped it around her neck. As far as I can tell, she was already dead, but he went to some pretty serious lengths to keep her that way. This story is, in general, just disturbing on a thousand different levels, but what gets me the most is how this kid recruited his friends to help him with this crime, and it worked. In today's world, we all have to worry about that one girl from high school who's trying to get us involved in an almost, you know, Ponzi scheme set up selling fake nails or something weird, but murder? Nate murdered his mom in front of Eric, and Eric was still helping him to cover it up. From what I've read, Eric wasn't exactly good with this. He was not chill about it at all, uh, but he still went along with it. And then Nate decided to call another friend, Brett, because at this point, I think he's just welcoming the neighborhood to a murder scene. But when Brett arrived on the scene, he already knew what had happened. He might not have been able to believe it, but he knew because Nate had been talking about it for some time. And the blood definitely told the truth about what happened. So Brett arrived and was taking the scene. He wanted nothing to do with it, so naturally he started helping them to clean up the murder. Nate killed his mom and had fully pulled his two closest friends into a murder and they just went along with it. It's just wild. You hear these stories about people getting pulled into things and you say, how does that happen? But here, I just... I think it's very confusing. (laughs) So they cleaned up the apartment and they decided to go drive around because what else do you do after committing a murder? You know, it's nighttime, you're with the boys, you gotta go for a cruise. 
Um, after a scenic drive, they rolled up Nate's mom in a sleeping bag, and then they wrapped that sleeping bag in a rug. The boys put her in the car, and then Eric and Brett, having had enough murder for the day, left. Nate drove her out to Daniel's Park and was attempting to unload her. It was then that a Douglas County Police Department sheriff stumbled across the scene. And this is where the story gets even more wild. In that moment, Nate was caught red-handed, and the police immediately arrested him. Then, the hunt was on. It was fairly obvious that Nate hadn't acted alone, and it seems like he also rolled over on his friends, which, all things considered, was exceptionally rude, considering he was the murderer who roped them into his crime, but Eric and Brett knew that they were in trouble. So, what was their solution? To flee to Mexico, of course. Now, this twist in the story is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. If you have listened to my previous episodes, you know that I have some fairly strong opinions on the stupidity of fleeing the country to try to dodge criminal charges, but... The situation was even more ridiculous here. Eric and Brett decided to flee to Mexico, these two teenagers. And there was just one problem with that. As minors, they couldn't make it through the highway checkpoints south of the border alone. And this is where I can kind of once again bring in some of my childhood with this one, because this suburban town, the one that has successfully hit the news for a few disturbed young men, um, breeds a movie-style kind of parental dependency. You know, you raise kids in a sheltered area, and a lot of them rely on their parents for pretty much everything. There isn't always a push towards independence for some families. And while not every kid in the area can just call mommy and daddy to bail them out, I'm pretty sure a good amount of them could, and that is what Eric and Brett did. When they couldn't succeed with their plan to flee to Mexico, they called their parents. Their parents flew to them and escorted them back to face the charges. To an extent, I really respect the parents for this. I think that we can all agree that some parents would do anything to cover up something like this for their kid, but these parents did bring their kids back to face their crimes. In the end, Brett was given immunity for rolling over on his friends. He gave his testimony and was able to walk away from the crime. Eric, on the other hand, was charged as an adult for first-degree murder, just like Nate was. What's interesting about Eric's case is that he was actually in talks to get a lesser charge. He was actively working on a plea bargain with the courts, but then something unexpected happened. The Columbine shooting. After another troubled young man named Eric committed a crime, the discussions were put aside. However, in 2019, Eric received clemency from Governor Jared Polis after serving more than 20 years in prison, and he has since been released and is 
making the absolute best of his life from what I can see. And then there is the matter of Nate and his problems. Obviously, when someone does something like killing a parent at a young age, people tend to look twice. And a lot of people wondered what really happened in this situation. How did it get to this point? Officially, there are two stories. First, there is the one shared by Nate's family, and then there is his own version. According to his family, Nate was a troubled kid. He did a lot of drugs, he had a problem with drinking, and was generally unpleasant to be around. At the point where Nate decided to kill his mom, his parents were in an effort to send him to military school in Missouri for his behavior. After sending him to rehab and trying other ways to get him help, they decided that military school would be a viable option to help get him on the right track. And then there is Nate's story. According to Nate, his family life wasn't exactly a peaceful time. He stated that his father had a violent temper and that his mother was emotionally unstable. Nate claimed that his parents would tap his phone, follow him around, and wouldn't let him have a single moment of peace. And then at some point, the abuse got worse. Nate stated that his mother was also sexually abusing him. And to support this, Eric shared his own perspective of Nate and his parents. The general sentiment was that something bad was happening to Nate, and you could just tell by his demeanor and attitude. In fact, his friends and their families contacted a social worker in an attempt to get Nate to a better situation, but nothing was ever done and no one was ever assigned to Nate's case. It seems that Nate needed help that just never came, and then something unspeakable happened. This story is something that has just been rattling around in my head since I was a kid. It was a story I grew up with, and I remember always considering it with just wide-eyed horror. It was the origin of a ghost story for me as a kid, the reason why you shouldn't be alone in Daniel's Park at night. But now it seems like a truly tragic story from start to finish. You know, it's not local lore, it is real. And while I can't speak to the truth behind what Nate experienced, I can certainly say that this story is just awful, no matter how you look at it. Either a young man who was being hurt finally made the choice to defend himself, or a troubled young man killed the woman who brought him into this world for no reason. It's sad, and it, uh, it, it got me thinking. What stories does your hometown have that might have some truly twisted origins? What secrets are hiding in your neighborhoods, whispered history. As of now, Eric has been released from prison and is starting a new life. Nate remains in prison to this day and will be there for the foreseeable future. And that's kind of the end of the story. I just want to say thank you for helping me to dive into some local history out here. It's pretty strange to think about how a local hangout ended up being the site for a grisly attempt to hide a body. But every neighborhood has their stories, I'm sure. 
I also just want to say thank you to everyone that reached out with feedback about the last episode. I am hearing that you guys enjoy the looser storytelling style, so I'm hoping to bring some more casual cases like the episode on Theodosia coming up soon. If you are looking for more true crime content or you just want to send me your local outdoor crimes, feel free to contact me with the tag at datpod on Twitter or Instagram. And for fun extras and the ad-free versions of my episode, feel free to pop over to my Patreon using patreon.com slash like and inscribe. Thanks, guys. Thank you.